and literally like spent shells are like ding ding bounce bounce bounced off my head they're all on the floor like peanut shells at a sports bar and we're like bah, 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 and then we go up on that side and shame was over there and she saw a guy with an rpg on his shoulder flares got released and i didn't know this till later because tim tole told me this he goes oh those are countermeasures graham that means you got the, the the helicopter sensed it was targeted by the rocket and the flares are to distract the rocket oh shit so it's like okay so april 27 2006 i almost got blown out of the sky Hi, I'm Brian Lally, Hollywood native, and this is the podcast, Brian Lally, Hollywood native. I was born in Hollywood, Cedars of Lebanon Hospital on Sunset Boulevard. Uh, Scott, our wonderful producer, Scott, we are here in this facility because of Scott. It was his brainchild, and I couldn't be happier. Thank you, Scott. And who do we have on the show today, Scott? Today, Brian, we have a great comedian, Graham Elwood. Graham Elwood? Graham. He's a comedian? Stand-up guy and stand-up comedian. Whoa, oh, man. Graham is a fantastic comedian. We're going to hear about his life. Born in Wisconsin, raised in the Chicago area, and how he financed a Yugo at 29% on a credit card. Yeah, what Graham talked about when he was overseas doing comedy, flying in the choppers while they were being detected or whatever by RPGs was crazy to hear him talk about that. Uh, he's had a great life, and uh, he's a great dude, so stick around. Graham Elwood. I was actually born in Stoughton, Wisconsin. We lived in Madison, so at the time, it was Stoughton was the only hospital where dads could be in the delivery room. I'm the youngest of four, and my dad, I'm the only one my dad got to actually see get delivered. Oh, that's where the trouble started. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know, if I would have just... You ruined my happy place. <laughs> Why can't you just be like your brother and sisters yeah. and just show up in a blanket? Why can't you just... So that, and then we lived in Madison until I was about 11, and then we moved to Chicago when I was uh, 11, almost 12. Right. Oh, okay. Yeah, and it was completely... So Madison, especially in the, in the 70s, in the 60s and 70s, it was called the Berkeley of the Midwest. There was anti-Vietnam protests. And oh, my dad, yeah. My dad was a college professor... Oh, it yeah, was, I got a buddy from Milwaukee, and we were talking about that just the other day because there was a guy, a comic, uh, he was talking about Madison and hippies and stuff, and I was like, I had no idea. that. It, so, there's yeah. a story, I mean, my mom, they were both theater people, and she talked about times she was in getting ready to do a play, and she was in the dressing room and looking out the window and seeing, like, the National Guard beat the shit out of college kids and anti-war protesters. Right. It got so out of hand there that a bunch of, like, real radical anti-war activists decided to blow up the math building because it was discovered that the math department at University of Wisconsin was, was doing research for the war, mm. for, for the military. So they were going to blow it up and they were like, we're going to do it late at night so we know no one's going to get hurt. And there was a grad student in there doing research late that they didn't know about and they killed this guy. Oh, shit. And yeah. he was a young grad student, just a math, and you know he had a wife and kids and it was like, that's why my mom was like, look, man, activism up to a point is okay. Yeah. It was, yeah, I was, so I was raised in this cauldron of like anti-Vietnam protesting and, right. you know, my dad taught the college kids that were protesting. So he was, the, he was older than, and so he was, you know, his older brother served in, my uncle was in 
World War, the end of World War II, and he was in, he was a Marine in, the, in Korea. He was in the Chosin Valley. And then he committed suicide when I was like one or two years old. So that was another thing, very anti-war. I know I'm going right into an anti-war thing right out of the gate, but like... Man, you just brought everybody down, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> war <clears throat> what is it good for so yeah we, i was raised in this kind of crazy environment and then we moved to chicago my parents got divorced and my mom and my brother and i moved to chicago when i was like 11 which is a completely different vibe yeah but which was colder chicago because of the lake right what's madison the wisconsin the winters in madison are, are at that time i mean climate change makes it a little different but when i was a kid it was like snow all the time but the chicago that wind off the lake oh my goodness mm -hmm. it would like uh, I remember. I remember just turning, turning the corner on a building, and the wind was blowing so hard that my knees hurt. The cold just was like beating my knees up. Jesus. So yeah, I got into Chicago. I was Chicago. My that was a whole other vibe because then my like junior high was sixty percent black. My high school was forty percent black, and it was a completely. I came from an all white Madison is a very white liberal mm -hmm. town, to then that environment, and that was like. You just walked in the middle uh, middle school. No. Uh, yeah, yeah, middle school. And mm -hmm. you said, hi, guys. Yes, hi. I'm from Madison. <laughs> like, and it was a, it was rough in certain ways. And then you, I got to, you know, see how Chicago and the, the mob town. And I got to see all this, all this crazy stuff. Are you in the theater, Darren? No, I was, I was, you know, sort of rebelling in my own way. Since my dad was a theater guy and he was an academic, he was a PhD. I was, my brother and I, I have a brother and two older sisters, very much, we were like jocks. We played Mm -hmm. sports part of it was my dad we we had season tickets to wisconsin football games when i was a kid so i played football and sports and i didn't really do much performing i my senior year <laughs> my high school had a cable channel it's it relatively new wow yeah so i broadcast a couple of the basketball games mm -hmm. and um i remember they were they weren't live they were pre-recorded and, and so <laughs> Me and my buddy, Ted O'Connell, were like, hey, can we pre-tape tonight's basketball game, the intro? And, the, and it was a student who was like overseeing the thing. There was a, 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 a teacher that did it, but that this kid was like the head AV kid. So he handled everything. And his name was Jeff. And he's like, okay. And, and so I was like, yeah, I had this thing already. I'm like, live from Evanston Township High School, the heart of Evanston, Illinois. We have an amazing contest. And he comes out of the, of the, the little closet, which was we called the booth. And he's like, come on, guys. You guys, you got to use your real voices. I'm like, these are real voices, Jeff, you know? <laughs> so that was the first sort of performing. I loved being a sportscaster. But mm. but why did he say you have to use your real voice? Because I was so over the top. I mean, he was like, you guys, I don't know. He was just whatever, being a straight edge. Straight edge. edge. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and, you know, he didn't see the humor in it. It wanted to be straightforward. And so I was, you know, and I would do stuff like, I'd broadcast the game in my football jersey. The other kid would be like in a suit and tie. Mm -hmm. And I just would go down on the court before the game. And they're like, are you sure? I'm like, I was on the football team. I'm going to just walk around. I had such so much fun doing that. That was my first sort of inkling into performing. And then I was a freshman in, high, in college at the University of Arizona. Bear down. Bear down, baby. Tim went there. And Johnny Cocktails and Eric Edwards both went there. Yeah. It's, it's a bear down kind of. That's where month. I met. I met a bunch of guys there. Mike Barker. Yep. I met, I had so much fun there. So my freshman year, I was a marketing major. <laughs> no, I was an economics major. And the reason I chose economics for my first semester was 
I was like filling out an application form and they said, what made you want to be? And I was like, and I chose economics because Michael J. Fox's character, uh, Alex P. Keaton on Family Ties was an econ major. So I picked my major based on a fictional TV character. <laughs> it might've given me an indication as to where I was going to be headed with my life. Yeah. I did that for a semester. I was like, this is horrible. And I changed it to film. I took economics. Oh. And if I had to sit in that class another minute, I would have shoved my fist down my throat till I stopped breathing. I was in those classes like, what? You know, I was just some knucklehead like, oh, I'll be rich and famous, a econ. Like, I didn't know what I was saw. I didn't realize, like, it is really hard and boring. And I was like, so I changed my major to, to uh, film and TV production. And then there was a couple guys in my dorm that were really funny. And we all said, like, if there's ever an open mic or something, we're going we're gonna to do this. And then, like, literally a month later... They announced this traveling U.S. college comedy competition that was going to colleges all over the campus. And if you you won, you were going to get on TV. And so they were dangling this whole thing. So I was like, oh, God. So I signed up for this. A bunch of us in the dorm signed up for it. I remember testing. I tested the material in the dorm in front of And we were in this dorm underneath the football stadium, Sierra dorm. And so it was all bunk beds. It was like a barracks. Mm -hmm. And we didn't have, we didn't, our windows looked out into the parking lot. We never saw the light. We never know if it was raining or not. This is before the internet. So we literally would like open up a window and someone would walk by and be like, is it nice? It was Arizona, so it was always nice. But, and then the first time I ever did stand up, the MC was a young comedian in acid wash jeans and a mullet named Judd Apatow. Oh, Jesus Christ. He was the MC. And that was the first time I ever did stand up. I was like, oh, and then I got hooked. And then I started going to the open mics. I had to get a fake ID to go to the open mics because I was 18. Mm-hmm. And I joined a sketch group in college. That's where I met Eric Edwards, was doing open mics. Okay. At Laughs Comedy Club in Tucson. Was uh, was Bill Hicks down there? Oh, he he hadn't come down yet. He started in Houston, but okay. he was already starting to blow up. Right. I saw Hicks at the Funny Firm in Chicago in 94, and I was like yeah. blown away. Yeah. Blown away yeah. by him. So then when I graduated, I went back to Chicago and I was like, I'm going to do this full time. And I just, at the time there was 14 clubs in the Chicago area. And within a year I quit my job waiting tables and was making my living as a road comic at age 22, driving around the Midwest. I mean, you just, I just did every show, every gig. I had a Yugo, not joking, an 86 Yugo, the Yugoslavian three cylinder car. I paid $750 for it. Oh, they saw you coming. Oh, God. (laughs) I had 500 cash, and then I had to put the rest on a credit card. (laughs) I financed it at, you know, 25%, whatever credit card interest rate. (laughs) It was a really good business deal. It was a smart kid, 21, really savvy. A dog was living in it, Mm -hmm. and I had to put another Uh, two... She wasn't that bad. Uh, yeah, and I had to put two fifty to get it up and running. So a thousand bucks, I got a car up and running. <laughs> a Yugo that wasn't running. Oh my god! Oh, oh you can't write this. It's just like they wouldn't believe it. No, if you put this in a movie, you'd be like, "This is bullshit." Yeah. <laughs> this is bullshit. No, it's a dog, and I was living. This is so great. I'm when I first moved to graduate, I got I was living with my brother, and we had a huge fight. Uh, he's bigger than me. 
and I hit him with a golf club and like he punched me and it was like ah, the Irish so the Irish a couple of Irish boys settling their disputes in a very reasonable manner you know scre- sounds, sounds all right to me <laughs> he's, he's screaming and then my buddy had to come pick me up and he, my brother's screaming out the window and I was like I, I stabbed f- my brother with a screwdriver in the neck once he was bigger than me <laughs> <laughs> While you're saying the communion, just yeah. like yeah. take that, Patrick, or whatever his Timothy or whatever Kevin, his, Kevin, of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. There, that was bless me, Father. I have sinned. Yeah, suck on that. Yeah, <laughs> take that to the confessional. Um, yeah, so a couple of good Irish kids just fighting in Chicago, like yeah. nobody batted an eye. Amateur weaponry. Yeah. <laughs> so I needed a place to stay. And one of the, I was the t- the place I was waiting tables at, uh, Pacino's on seventy five East Wacker. Make a great stuffed pie if you're ever in the city. Um, then the, one of the delivery guys had a detailing, like an auto shop that did detailing, and he had a room for rent. And it was just on the west of downtown, so it was in this like industrial district. And I was like, cool, and I could take the bus to the restaurant to wait tables. And he was the guy who was like, found some, this Yugo in a lot that was sitting there that a dog was living in. And he, for, he goes for 250, oh. I'll get this thing cleaned up and up and running for you, you know? And so I was living above a, an auto shop. No heat? No, there was heat. Oh, okay. Yugo, the Yugo uh, had a tape deck. Oh. And, and the thing was, it was a stick shift. And this is what I would do with my buddies. <laughs> the dog took it when he left. <laughs> 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 the dog ate the fourth cylinder um so we'd get on the highway and you know it was an h and i go first gear second gear third when i was in third gear i go get ready guys about to drop the hammer and i'd <laughs> be like <laughs> so that was the yugo but that thing i drove that my first year in chicago and i drove it all over the midwest doing gigs i put twenty five thousand miles on that car in a year wow i got every penny out of that that Man. thing and the gas you know, gas back then was 90 cents a gallon. Right. It was getting 35. I mean, and I could park that thing anywhere in the city of Chicago. Yeah, nobody would. Nah, there's so many <laughs> spots. Like where that little couch is, I could park that car there. Nobody would break a window on that. No one's breaking into it. Nobody cares. You know, no one's messing with it at all. They're just like, ah, don't touch it. It might, might bad luck. Yugoslavian <laughs> bad luck might rub off on you or something. <laughs> the car was banned in the States because they were too dangerous. Right. And so I was driving around in this death trap coffin and I was coming back. I had the car for a year. I was coming back from a show in Northern Illinois or Wisconsin or something. We're driving back into the city and we're, it's like, we were, it was, we were out all night, me and my buddy. We're driving back into the city and we hit rush hour traffic. And I'm like, we're trying to stay awake. And I felt, and I was like, and I doze and boom, I hit the car in front of me. And I was like, oh shit, we get out. Their car was fine. Right. The Yugo looked like I hit a, a brick wall at 40 miles an hour. Like the front just buckled. And I was like, God. And it wouldn't start. So we, I had to keep popping the clutch. Right. And then I just scrapped it. Yeah. And the guy that I left, you know, the, the car dealer, and then I got a new apartment or something like that. Then the, the car guy, he took it and ran up par- like $1,000 worth of parking tickets. Mm. <laughs> really nice guy. Yeah. And... But no, the front end caved in and I was like, oh my God, I was like, I need to get rid of this car because if I ever got in a real accident, I'm dead. Yeah. And then the I- The Pinto of Yugoslavia. Oh, it was. It, no, it made a Pinto look like, an, like a Lincoln Continental. Like it was, 
Then the next car I got was a an '89 Toyota Tercel hatchback. Oh shit! And that was like I was. You living. still got that today? Those yeah. things, those those things never die. That's <laughs> that's the greatest car ever. ever that car was great. I drove that car across country when I moved to L.A. Yeah. And then that car died in the Rose Bowl parking lot. I don't know why we're talking about all the cars that I've owned, but anyway. <laughs> Only ones that died. Only ones that died. So when you're grinding it out in that uh, Chicago area, are you thinking L.A. already, or is that, it's, is that not even? I was like, I eventually knew it needed to be L.A. or New York because I wanted to work in film and TV. And I don't know, New York, I was just like, after going to college for four years in Arizona, the warm weather coming back to Chicago, I was like, oh, I don't know if I can do this weather anymore. Like you're so spoiled in mm -hmm. Arizona. And then Tim Tolley, Eric Oldenburg, Tom Forrest, a bunch of the people I went to school with in Arizona and some of them were comics and performers were in LA. And I was like, I gotta, I gotta move to LA. Like all this stuff was happening. And then this one comic, Paul Gil Martin, um, who has a great podcast called Mental Illness Happy Hour. He moved to LA a year before I did, and he got on this show on TBS, Dinner and a Movie. Oh, yeah. 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 So we were like, that's where the work is. And, and the road, at the, it was a whole different animal. There was no social media. The road now is, is a really, really good place if you have a high social media presence and you can build up your... But back then, it was like the only way to get fans was TV. Mm -hmm. to do late night TV shows or sitcoms. It was the only way. And so the road was kind of a dead end unless you had a fan base and you couldn't get that. Just being on the road. Just being on the road. You yeah. kind of could, but there was no way to even collect the fans. I mean, now you can go on the road and every live show go, hey, follow me on social media. And I know comics that do that and they hand out flyers with their social QRF, whatever. And, and you, can, you can do that. Um, so it was like, you got to move to LA. And the road was like, man. You're on the road with some of these older headliners and you're seeing the Coke problems and the, the drinking and you're seeing all of this at like age 23, 24 years old. And you're like, I don't want this to be me, man. Mm -hmm. You know, they're cheating on their wives or what you're just seeing in the club owners. Some of them are shady. So, you know, there's like, oh, this place is laundering money for the mob or what, you know, yeah. like I had club owners just put Saturday night. They're going to pay you. They just put the gun on the table. And back then, this is again, this is all verbal agreements over the phone. There's no, not even an email. So now, like if, if a guy said, I thought we were going to pay you this, I can literally pull up my phone and say, no, 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 we, this is the money. This is what we're, but then they'd go, uh, it was $300, right? And you go, no, no, it was $350. And they're like, hmm, what do you do? Right. You know, and they're testing you and, you know, you got to push back. But if you push back too much, you're not going to get booked back. You know, they would, this kind of shit happened all the time. Mm -hmm. And so that was what life was on the road. And I was like, I got to move to LA. And eventually it was like, I, and then about a, a, the winter of 94, Chicago had a, just a brutal winter. It was like three feet of snow. Um, I was living with my girlfriend at the time and our building only had one covered space. So I was parking on the street. Jesus. And I remember coming home late from shows. We lived in this, this neighborhood kind of near like Lincoln Parkish near the lake. It was a really nice rent control building. And I'd come back at one in the morning on a Friday, Saturday night and drive for 45 minutes looking for parking space. Like, and you know, you get blocked in by the snow plows. And it was like, we had a, a week of weather that was like 20 below. And I was like, I can't, I'm out of here, man. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so I started to make plans to come out here and I came out here 
a year or six months or something before I moved here and I did some shows. I like did the ice house and a couple other places like that. And I was hanging out with Eric. Mm -hmm. um, is that when I met you at islands? I think that is when we met at islands. Yeah. yeah and that's where I met like Jeff T and that's when I was like, let's make the move. And, and the, I was in a comedy group and we said, we all got to move to LA together. And so one guy moved out with his wife and then me and the other two guys, the three of us packed up my Toyota Tercel and drove across country and, it was it was it was a fun exciting thing to do yeah, yeah. that right. that comedy group was a was that a improv or it was a sketch group okay nice. we all met at the university of arizona so we all moved to chicago i was the only guy from chicago they were all from arizona so we all moved to chicago and we started doing that weather changed for them. Oh man. boy, that was rough. They were like, "What?" I was like, "Get buckle up, kids. This is <laughs> this is this is just fall." <laughs> this, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's only October, guys. <laughs> Wait till you're in March and you want to hang yourself. Yeah. Now, did you know Barker back then, Mike Barker? I think I met Mike a little bit after. Like, I don't think I knew him that well in school. Okay. I think I think I was after the fact. Like, oh shit, you went there too. It was like that yeah. kind of a yeah. thing. Mike was there for the early days of Family Guy, one of the writers, when we were writing the Bible oh, okay. for the for the show, and then he co-created American Dad. But I knew he went there with you guys. And Eric was one who told him, take a chance, come on out. Man, Brian, you know what I love doing? Yeah. I love tapping that subscribe button. Mmm. I love it too, son. And just like all your dates, I tap at last, but nothing's as good as tapping this button. You see Brian here? He's not always doing the best. Financially, mentally, physically, for sure. You want to help keep Brian off the streets of Hollywood? There's a way you can help. Join us on Patreon. You want to tell him what we got on there, buddy? Yes, we have the general admission. We have the backstage. And we have the VIP all-access pass, so please join today. I'm due for a bath. In the arms of the he did all right for himself. Eric said that to me. He said that to several people. Like, yeah. come out here, man. Like, you, you can do this. I need someone to cover half my rent. <laughs> <laughs> well, then, then Eric was living with Jeff T. And so we all started to hang out. And then we did shows together. And that comedy group, Fancy Ketchup, when we first got out here, Paul Goble became a regular at the store. Paul Goble's still funny, man. He's a good he, he, he puts that shit on Facebook. Cracks me up. He's a funny man. I know. And so we had a, a weekly show in the belly room at the store called Fancy Ketchup and Friends. Oh, Which I think you came to yes. a couple of those. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And we would do stand-up and sketches and variety. It was like a variety show. We'd have characters. I mean, like Maria Bamford did our show. Sarah Silverman did that show. I mean, all these comics that like blew up. It was the 90s when the alternative comedy scene was becoming a thing. Mm -hmm. Largo was becoming a big thing, you know, and all these alternatives. I remember doing all those people. Page. Largo was on Fairfax then? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was when Largo... I don't think it's there anymore. It's over on La Cienega. Yeah. Well, so. yeah, Flanagan moved it to La Cienega, but I remember Lisa Line Gang started doing the Largo show, I think whatever it was, Monday nights or something, that was like the hip room, and it was... I remember then I, I got in at the at the... I couldn't get, Mitzi wouldn't approve me at the store, but I got in at the Hollywood Improv. And the first time I ever performed there, Bud Friedman was there. And I was so bummed. I was, 
gone for his funeral because he found out it was my first time. Is this your first time here, young man? And then he introduced me, made it a big deal. First time ever on our stage. Bud Freeman inter- brought me on stage the first time ever, which was in 95 or 96. I moved here in October 95, so I think it might have been spring of 96. And I started working there and, you know, I emceed there a lot. And I remember Chris Rock popped in, Jerry Seinfeld popped in. Like, I mean, it was like, it was such an education because it was a great education in Chicago because there's all these like professional road comic headliners in Chicago that you got to go on the road and work with them for a week. And, and a lot of these guys were just like, I call them the, like the, the middle class or the working class road comic. They're not huge names. They're not selling, play, but they are pros. Their act was, and you saw them, like you saw the alcoholic fuck ups, mm-hmm. but then you saw the guys that were pros and the way they conducted themselves they weren't out there hitting on the waitresses. They weren't getting in the way. They just, they showed up to work and they mm-hmm. worked their set and they did, you know, they were, they were really great joke writers, guys like Mike Toomey, Bill Leff. And you'd just be like, damn, these guys. And it was like, boom, boom, boom. And they were, they were such professionals. And I watched so much of what they did, not just in terms of their act or joke writing, but like how they held the mic, how they looked at the audience little things like they'd say, thank you, good night. And they wouldn't just run off stage. They'd stand to the side and wait till the MC came on stage. So there was never an empty stage, like show business stuff, like showmanship. Mm-hmm. And then at the funny firm in Chicago, and then I was working the improv in Chicago. I saw these huge name acts come through, you know, Emo Phillips, Judy Tenuta were out of Chicago. Bill yeah. Hicks came through. I mean, all these big name acts, Mario Joyner, and you'd watch, you get to watch them work up close. You know, for years on YouTube, uh, Bill Hicks laid dormant. There wasn't a lot of, I mean, you can see it now, but you talk to people, they didn't know Bill Hicks. I know brought him up a couple times, but he was out of his fucking mind, man. He was so, he was so good. This is how good the guy is. He did a set on the Letterman they wouldn't air because it was too hard, like too truthful. Which Letterman always regretted. Yes. Yes. And I think they since, they They've since aired it. They've since aired it, and he apologized to Hicks' mother. Yeah. One of the reasons I started talking about anti-war stuff as I grew up, because Hicks was the guy that was showing me and a lot of young comics, you can be anti-war. Like, Carlin showed us that, obviously, during right. Vietnam. But Hicks did it during the first Gulf War. Oh, he had a big bush set. Yes. Yeah. I mean, he talked about that, and he took a lot of shit here. But Hicks blew up in England. And... I saw him at the funny firm in Chicago and we sat in the back and there was me and Jimmy Dore and a couple other like Chicago acts. And he was on the way he delivered, the way he talked. We were just yeah. like, damn. He, he, he brought the fire, man. Oh. He brought the fucking fire. I'll tell you this story. So he, he's, he's getting close to the end of his set and he's just crushing. And he goes, any questions? And Dennis, um, Dennis Leary oh, okay. had just started to break. It was getting big then. He was on MTV a lot. And somebody goes, I think it was Jimmy, Tor goes, what about Dennis Leary? <laughs> and Bill Hicks takes, takes a drink and uh, lights a cigarette and goes, well, it's good to see my act from three years ago still working. And then take a <laughs> <laughs> true story. We all went, oh! <laughs> Again, this is pre-social media. That would yeah. have blown up today. Yeah. Somebody's yeah. saying something like that now. Yeah. yeah. But we all just saw it in the club privately. So Hicks was in Arizona the same time as Kennison? 
Yeah, so they came out of Houston. Yeah, came out of Houston. So he did come up with Kennison and those guys. Right. That, and this is what happens when you're around really good comics. You're standing and you watch a comic on stage throwing fastballs. You're like, shit, I better get my game together. And that's like Kennison and a couple other, I forget the names of some of the other Houston comics. And they were just making each other better. Right. You know, Hicks was talking politics in a way that nobody really had since Carlin. Right. You know? Right. Like t talking about how the whole system's nonsense. Yeah. It was inspirational. And it, it's, I, I never did comedy like that until about four years ago. I started to become way more political and right. talk about how everything's broken and both parties are bullshit. Mm -hmm. And it was inspired by guys like Hicks and Carlin. And watching that Carlin special, that, that documentary that's on HBO, yeah. where George Carlin says, at age 60, he goes, I'm just now finding my comedic voice. And I was like, Right. George Carlin. Yeah. Still finding his comedic voice at age right. 60. Right. On his like fifth incarnation of. <laughs> of right, right, right. right. Like, the, the suits on, the skinny suits on Ed Sullivan <sighs> and, you know, growing a hair and. Yeah. Being the anti war comic. And then in the late 70s, early 80s, he becomes kind of a joke. He's a punchline. They're making fun of him. Like, I didn't realize that. Like, Rick Moranis made fun of him on SCTV. And Carlin was like, what? And then late 80s, he comes back with a fire and a vengeance. And then- Is that when he got sober? That's when he got sober. Okay. Yeah, he gets sober. Yeah. And then comes back on fire. Yeah. And then the Gulf War breaks out. And then his his last couple of specials in like 03, 04, were like, when he calls out the war in Iraq, and he has a line, I think this special was, I forget which one was, 03 or 04. They're all on HBO. He says, it's called the American dream because you got to be asleep to believe it. That's just one of those lines as a comic. You just go, oh, it's like a, when, when a pro basketball player watches a guy just make some amazing shot and everybody goes, that, okay, yeah. you did it. Right. There was three right. guys in your face and you hit a 35-footer leaning back. Right. And, I, I, you, I, and he was talking about the people that really run the country, yeah. not the Democrats, not the Republicans. He said those something like four rich guys he's like four of these cock and i remember he goes these cocksuckers they don't give a fuck about you at all at all at all i mean it's just like it was like fire breathing hard truth rant comedy like right. damn uh, i mean fear, it was fearless shit fearless shit he's like i don't give a shit i'm in my sick what the fuck what are you gonna do yeah. fuck you <laughs> george carlin yeah. You know, yeah. I've done 300 episodes of TV. I've done game shows and on late night. I've worked in TV and I'm grateful for it. It was cool. But TV is very restrictive for many reasons. Okay. It's... So we're going to talk. Let's go right there. Then okay. we're going to talk about that, that you were a game show host. Mm -hmm. You're making really good money. You buy a house right around the block from me. All right. Yeah. And then you, you sell that house and move to Santa Monica in a mm -hmm. condo. Mm -hmm. Was that before or after you told your agent? You're not doing game shows anymore because you're you're a comic. I I told my agent that after I moved to Santa Monica, um, I really fell in love with the beach. I moved there in '03. August of '04 is when I did my first comedy tour through Afghanistan, which was a life changing thing, because again. I grew up in an anti war environment, right? right? But I realized we haven't had a draft since the 70s. We've had economic conscription. We've had right. a poverty draft. Right. And I was like, and I'd been a Red Cross volunteer since 9-11. And so I was like, I want to be of service. And, and I'd stopped drinking in 02. And I was like, I don't want to just be this like Hollywood 
party boy, game show host. And, you know, when 9-11 happened, I was like, what am I doing with my life? Hosting game shows, just partying in Vegas. You know, like, what am I doing? I got to do more, you know? Yeah, man, but it, it takes a whole conscious change and it takes a lot of fucking balls. Because you were making good money. You owned a home in Los Angeles and... And you, you, yeah. you know, you didn't know it at the time, but you ended up giving it all up. Yes. To do, to, yeah. to, to stay true to your art, man. That's fucking commendable, Graham. I mean, that, you know, there's a lot of jokes going to be made about, you know, where sure. you ended up. But, but on, on the serious side, that's fucking commendable. I appreciate so. that. It was, wasn't like I made decisions this one day and then everything changed. It was sort of a gradual thing. It was like 9-11 happened. I started volunteering for the Red Cross and seeing like people who lost their home burned to the ground and working shelters. Our friend Tim Taulay lost three friends in the Trade Towers. He's from New York. He was in the recruiter's office on September 12th. He signed up at age 35. So I had a friend of mine. And he went through ranger training. He was honestly like the Brando character in Apocalypse Now. Martin Sheen's like, yeah, I went through that at 19. Almost killed me. Yeah. And then, yeah, he went, he went through ranger. He wasn't a ranger, but he went through ranger training. Went to ranger school. Yeah. He's a ranger. He went to ranger school at age 35. Oh, it's like you're talking about apocalypse. Now they must have thought he was some far out old man, yeah. you know? Yeah. And, then, and then he got some sort of um, affliction and he had to come back here and then he had to go back and start over. He went to ranger school twice. And then he's deployed in Afghanistan. I played the cross with him in college, right? right? He's three years older than me. Yeah. And he did that. And then he was a gunner in Fallujah. And he told me, I was like, Tim, were you scared? And the first time he goes, well, the first time I went to Fallujah in a Humvee in the first six months of the war in Iraq, he goes, Graham, I was on the top of a Humvee. You're a target. He goes, I couldn't feel my legs. And I was like, I don't want to be in war. I don't want to have a weapon. I don't want to do that. But I got to give back somehow. And also, so the first documentary was called Afghanistan. Afghanistan, correct? I just want to get that. Yes, it's out there. Available, it's on there. Right? Yes, it's at Afghanistan. If you go to rockfin.com/slash/gramelwood, you can watch. One more time, it. say it. I'm serious. Rockfin.com. Rockfin it's a it's a it's like a YouTube competitor, and it's blockchain. They pay us in crypto. It's very cool. So Afghanistan is available there. And I went. So I went over there because part of it was like, if I'm going to be critical of this government in this country. I don't want anyone to question my patriotism. So I'm going into a war zone. Right. You know, yeah. as a vegetarian, you know, hippie liberal, like at the time I was liberal. Now I'm, I call myself an anti-war pro-labor socialist. But um, so I, I was like, no one can question my patriotism. And so I went into it and it was life-changing. I mean, like I was on a helicopter that came under fire and, and, you know, I since did seven. I went to Afghanistan three times, Iraq three times, and then a separate trip to Kuwait. And so, um, and I met veterans and I saw wounded soldiers. I saw wounded civilians. I saw like, I don't know what combat is like. I'll never know what that's like, but I've seen war way more up close than most civilians have. I'll just say that. Well, Afghanistan, that part where you're, you're hiding out in the dark and you hear the bombs going out and you're narrating what's going on. That's pretty fucking scary to watch, you know? You know, I was on it. We were on a helicopter a black hawk and you're you know you're strapped in it's, a, it's like a four-point harness and we were flying doors open and we had just done a show me and shay matash had just done a show in uh, jalalabad which is 15 miles from the pakistan border and all of a sudden so from me to you you're the you know let's say you're me and these are doors open i'm the gunner mm -hmm. and we start banking up like that so you're just like looking out this is door and i get out of my chair and i'm 
and literally like spent shells are like ding ding bounce bounced off my head they're all on the floor like peanut shells at a sports bar and we're like bah, 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 and then we go up on that side and shame was over there and she saw a guy with an rpg on his shoulder flares got released and i didn't know this till later because tim tole told me this he goes oh those are countermeasures graham that means you got the, the the helicopter sensed it was targeted by the rocket and the flares are to distract the rocket oh shit so it's like okay so april 27 2006 i almost got blown out of the sky yeah okay right on um and that kind of stuff really it it, it changed me to where i was like and i came back and my agent sending me out, everything was changing from game shows to reality TV. And I said, these reality shows were so dumb. <laughs> and I couldn't, I remember my agent goes, Graham, I got you, finally got you an audition. It, and this is after my like third or fourth trip over there. And he goes, I, I got you an audition at E. And I was like, oh, cool. You know, cause they were, Talk Soup was getting a new host. And I was like, wow, shit, Greg Kinnear blew up from this. I'm like, this could be, he goes, but I gotta be honest with you. And it was this agent, John Paradise, really cool guy. He's no longer with us. He was a great agent. He goes, Graham, I got to be honest, it was hard to get to the audition. I go, why? He goes, because this is what the woman said. We love Graham, but we don't think he's taking it seriously. <laughs> and I started laughing and I go, John, you know, and I literally just got back from like an Iraq trip. And I said, John, you know, you're right. The next time I'm like doing a fundraiser for wounded warriors or people coming back from Iraq, I'll try to keep up with the Kardashians. And he starts laughing and he goes, come on, Graham. I go, okay, I'll try. I, but I couldn't do it anymore. Right. I couldn't. Right. I, remember go, I remember going to some, like they were doing an offshoot of Cash Cab. And, they're, and I was on the short because I had already hosted two shows. I had 300 episodes. Like they knew I could host. I was on the short list. I did a half a dozen pilots. I would, they would just call me in. I mean, the show Cram, I didn't even audition for it. They just hired me. So I was like on the short list for these shows. And I remember, I was like, oh, Cash Cab, this could be fun. Ben's funny. And it was like Cash Cab in another city. And we're getting there and there's just a couple of us waiting and this producer comes in late and he's bitching and he's yelling at his staff because they fucked up a Starbucks order. And I'm just sitting there like, this motherfucker. And he's like, okay, who are you, Graham? All right, tell us a little bit about yourself. I said, well, I just got back from entertaining the troops in Iraq. And all of a sudden his attitude's, oh, thank you and all this. And I, I was saying, you punk Hollywood bitch, <laughs> without saying it to his face. Because right. I was just like, yeah, I was in a war zone entertaining the military and it really changed. And I said, like, you really see what's important and what isn't. And I just paused and looked at him like, <laughs> yeah. I didn't fucking slap that Starbucks out of your fucking hand. Right. Like, I know 19-year-olds who, oh, this is my first ever comedy show. I grew up in small town USA. My first ever comedy show is at a fucking fire base. Right. And I got to listen to this punk bitch complain because it's like, I'm, I'm, mad, I'm mad right now when I think yeah. about it. So I couldn't, I was like, I can't, I'm going to punch one of these producers in their fucking face, man. Right. Like, I can't do this. Right. And, and I just, so I made Afghanistan. It took me several years to make. And then, you know, I was just like, I was really wrestling with, do I even want to be in Hollywood? But then I saw the benefit of frivolous entertainment. I wasn't doing political material in war zones. They don't need to hear it. Right. They're living the failure of politics. Right. Yeah. And I was going over there doing silly stuff and making fun of myself. And, the th and they would tell me this, oh, this Scott Kennedy, look him up. He went over there over 50 times. He passed away in 2013. Scott Kennedy was an amazing guy. He brought me to Afghanistan three times. And so 
they, um, Scott said, we were in Iraq and we were set to hit these three fire bases to, to do shows. Scott was all about going to the small fire bases. And we're sitting on the tarmac outside of Biop, which is the main base in Baghdad. And he gets a call and he's like, all right, um, this base, they had a firefight last night and two guys died. So the base is shut down. There's no comedy show. And I was like, oh God. And I started to feel like, oh, I'm an idiot. Oh, I'm just some stupid comedian. These families are getting the worst news. These guys are putting it all on the line. Whether you agree with the war or not, these young guys are putting it all right, on the line. Right, right. Yeah, 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 yeah. The horrible... Yeah. Yeah. The horrible fact of Vietnam that they didn't get thought didn't, of like that. Yeah. Any, anyways. And yeah. It, it's well, and the, here's the economics of it. This is why I'm a socialist. They're all working class kids. Right. You want to end war? Let's let Ivanka Trump and Hunter Biden go fucking fight. Then the wars will goddamn end. Anyway, I don't want to get into my too much of that. But so I felt like dumb. I felt like I was like Scott and he was going over there once a month. He, 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 his whole, we, all we did was go to small bases because he knew the small bases, they didn't have anything. The big bases had like subways, not that they had it easy at the big base, but by comparison. Right. And he, he literally like, he's like, Graham, I had a, I had a commander tell me that whenever the, a comedy show comes through the base, the suicide rate drops. He goes, we're saving lives. I can't. He goes, this is our mission. I'm going to get to these bases later in a couple months when things cool down. I'm going to get us other shows today. We have a mission. And I was like, okay, I need to shut the fuck up. Stop crying. Let's get it. And I was like, Roger that. Right. And when he told me that the suicide rate dropped when comedy shows would come through the bases. Cause you know, these kids are young. They're out of their first time on a plane was a C-17 to goddamn Kandahar or Baghdad or right, some shit. Right. And I saw how important doing comedy over there was. So I, that's where I was like, well, there's a place for frivolous entertainment. There's a place for popcorn. Cause right. I would come back from these war zones and I just went there for two weeks and I needed to go watch a Superman movie or what, right. you know, I needed to watch some silly nonsense to get my mind off of this. And what I went through was, was one one thousandth of what a combat vet is going through on a 12 month deployment. Yeah. So I was like, okay, how can I make this work? Because, and Tim Talley was like, Graham, you were put on this earth to make people laugh. Right. Yeah. This is what you were meant to do. Right. So you got to focus on what this is. And so I just started slowly figuring out how this, what, what this is going to look like. And, Part of it looked like, you know, having to go through bankruptcy and foreclosure and losing my nice condo by the beach, you know, and part of that was, again, why I'm so against, I'm an independent, I don't like both parties. I saw Bush and Obama bail out the banks and still there were 6 million. <laughs> Nobody went to jail. The Iceland put their, the CEOs in jail and there were still 6 million foreclosures. So I was like, oh, this is nonsense. And I voted for Obama twice, but I'm like, he, he's working, they're all working for the banks. It's all corrupt. It's like what Carlin said. <laughs> it's, they don't care about you at all. Right. You've been watching Brian Lally, Hollywood Native. Now I want to talk to you about something I'm really passionate about, and that's teaching acting. So I co-founded Lola's Acting School with my son, Kyle Lally, Lally or Lally Acting School. I've been acting for a, a long time now of 100 plus credits on IMDb, hundreds of plays I've been involved with over the years. And I just want to share that experience with you. What we do differently here at Lola's is we give you practical advice that you can use on a movie set, on a play, an audition, anywhere. We give you the foundation to build yourself as a great actor. 
If you come to us, you don't know anything. We can teach you everything you need to know to be comfortable on a, on a set and to excel. Don't just listen to me. Look at what our students are doing. Daryl Wesley, who is writing on two hit shows, The Game and The Upshaws, and Ben Barrett, who is a series regular on The Politician, Megan Davis, who is uh, playing Amber Heard in the Johnny Depp Amber Heard story. Come check us out. We're at the Historic Arc Theater in the NoHo Arts District. You ever want to try plant-based eating? I have. What, you're a little confused, overwhelmed, you don't know how to get started? Definitely. Well, there's a simple answer to that. Go to Debbie Chu's Chew On Vegan YouTube channel. Debbie Chu is a plant-based RN. I've known Debbie for over 38 years, and she's very good at what she does. You go to the channel, and there's 300, over 300 recipes. They're simple, easy to make, and they're delicious. If you want to try it, you just might get healthy. Give it a shot. Chew on vegan. And so I, um, that was a tough thing to go through. And there was, and there was also, and then I also had to take later on, take responsibility. Like this was my part in that. Like, I can't just blame it all on a corrupt system. Two things can exist at the same time. There's a corrupt system in place. And I made some mistakes. And in that, you know, and then the digital, the podcasting started coming and I just I love the freedom of podcasting we can have this long form we don't have to cut for a commercial break right and I got involved with the Los Angeles you know helped start and do the Los Angeles podcast festival we did that for six years I did this earbuds podcast so I I, I have just sort of figured out like in the digital media which I love because it's all up to you there's no network executive green lighting or canceling it but you have to do a lot of work so that's sort of I know it's a very long answer to your question, but like that's the, that's the process I went through, and how when I walked away from, you know, I could have kept making a six seven figure income just being Johnny host. Right. And look, if they came to me right now and said, "Do you want to host, you know, a dog food game show?" I'd say, "Yeah, man, why not? I would do it." But but again, at this point, you could get your social media up and and do what you want to do. You know what I mean? I mean, it, it's different now. Yeah. You know, guys, stars would have never been on this stuff before. Now mm -hmm. you got Johnny Depp on TikTok, Brad Pitt on TikTok. They're funny guys anyway, but you know what I mean? They're getting million. Jennifer Aniston broke Twitter, didn't she, when she got on yeah. it, you know? So, yeah, but people, people, well, you know, backstars didn't used to do commercials, except in Europe, but it's a different world, man. It's a different world. I got almost 200,000 followers on TikTok because I am a senior tiktok influence <laughs> you are like the one of the greatest examples of social media in general but tiktok specifically and how it can be anything and anyone can benefit from it now and it's a great like when we saw each other you know last year or something and i i hadn't talked to you in a little bit and you were telling me i was like this mtv grandpa like this is amazing dude and mtv I, gramps don't MTV fuck up gramps. my name my bad my MTV bad gramps. my bad mtv gramps follow lally right now <laughs> and i was like this is awesome and it is a it is a whole new world now yeah that's exactly why like if someone offered me i'm not going to really pursue it but if somebody offered me some frivolous little thing i'd say yeah because i'd get a million followers and then i could say come right. come listen to this podcast yeah. i i had a guy in in my uh lola's acting class and just, it's got to be three years ago, maybe three and a half years ago. And I was talking about how we film all our scenes and turn them into short films. You know what I mean? We don't, not just on the stage, we turn them into short films. And he was like, yeah, I don't want any of that. You know, it was really, he was like, yeah, I don't want any of that. And he goes, yeah, I was talking to 
forget what name it was, maybe that's better, who was a big-time TV casting director. She was. I mean, she'd been around 20, 25 years casting big shows. She goes, yeah, we don't want to see your, your amateur shit. You know, we want to see the work you've done. Well, you know, I called him a year ago, you know, and we're buddies, but I called him a year ago, and it said, it's changed, hasn't it? Yeah, we want to see anything. We want to see your, your senior pimp pimping my 70-year-old hose with 10.5 million views. We want to see you. Yeah, we want to see what you're getting. Agents call up. I'm getting more auditions because I have that many followers, but casting uh, directors call up agents and ask, do you have anybody with 100,000 followers? That's the number. And that's one of the things I realized. Like, I have to get across that number. It's one of the reasons I'm shooting this special the end of October, because once you get to the 100,000 and up, then everyone goes, oh, you're legit. That 10 and a half million is a legit, tangible number. Yeah. Like my friend James Mane is this big Samoan comedian. He lives in Oahu. He's a really great friend of mine. And we've been talking about social media. He talked me into doing TikTok. I did it. I had a video go viral. I went from 50 followers to 30 some thousand. And it's kind of flatline right now. But he put this thing out make it like showing some wasp vid, like reaction to a wasp video or something 60 million views right and it's gotten you know 60 million on facebook and 20 million on tiktok and it's like that's real numbers because from a just a business standpoint now we have like you've got 200,000 people so if i we do a deal where you you know you're holding my product or whatever they're going to see that right versus before you just go i'm funny i'm talented right mm, why should i invest any money in that right. and now it's like well i got the numbers to show it right which i love because yeah. it opens it up for any of us it's none yeah. of this like oh you're too old for show business what yeah. no i'm not check, <laughs> right. my, followers. check my followers yeah. see how old they are bitch yeah. like <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah oh man so you got married in that condo yes yeah um, and uh yeah, I, was, I mar- married this woman I met in Brazil, and that didn't work out. And we're still friends. She's a wonderful person. And, you know, she's even been a really good friend. Like, my father passed away two years ago, and she called me and said, you know, when I moved here from this country, your dad always treated me with dignity. My dad spoke several languages. He was very fluent in Spanish, a little bit of Portuguese. But that meant a lot to me, because I was like, man, that was cool to hear that she was like, your dad always treated me with dignity. And she was like in tears saying, he was, he, you know, when I came to this country, it was hard. You know, when you're a, an immigrant and you don't speak English that well, some people give you shit, you know? Right. Yeah. So it was cool. Like, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm glad I'm really, I'm really still good friends with her, but. And then. Oh, we want to get into this one. Okay. Okay. <laughs> well, do we? I mean, we're recorded. I, we can cut it out. I don't know what, what we wanted to go, but I know it's very important. So we don't have to do that no, today. No. And we can cut this part out talking, you know, this part and just. I can, we can get into it if you, yeah. I mean, I thought that, you know, I thought that was one of the things we were going to yeah, talk about because, sure. because it's important. It is. And is this the right time? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. Okay. Um, so, so, so you got divorced. Got divorced, <laughs> dated, you know, uh, was on the road. And then, um, yeah, I met this woman um, in 2014 when I was on the road in Florida really nice big fan you know and she, you know we talked on the phone and she was like yeah i'm thinking about moving to la and i was like oh, when you come out you know i'll show you around she came out we went on, you know met her out went on a date we started kind of dating um she was younger and i i was like i was like only four years out of being divorced and i was like i'm not i don't want to be serious. so i kept her at arm's length 
And she was really cool and nice. She goes, well, I'm not going anywhere. And, you know, uh, take your time. And it took me six months before I even said, like, this is my girlfriend. And, and then it was a year and a half before she moved in with me. And really sweet, nice girl. Um, so I'm, I don't drink. I'm sober. I've never done hard drugs. I've never I've smoked weed a handful of times. I've never done hard drugs. So I don't know that world. And I helped her get a job at the Hollywood Improv. And when she first started working there, this was like summer, fall of 2016. That was right when she moved in with me. I was working at the box office. She's like, God, everyone at the Improv's doing cocaine. I was like, what? I'm not, I'm so oblivious to that world. And I think because in comedy, everybody knows that I don't even drink. Nobody offers me anything. Nobody, and all I've ever seen is weed and drinking. Mm -hmm. Now I used to drink. I spent a night in a Chicago jail. We can talk about that on another episode, but... <laughs> Um, <laughs> and I was like, Oh God, don't be, don't get near that. Don't get. And I had and she's like, God, everyone's doing coke. I was like, don't go near that. I've, and comics in my age group, when I started to say, you know, like 2016, 2017, everyone, I started hearing there's more cocaine coming. And I was like, what? All the comics that started when I did late eighties, early nineties, all said the same thing. Cocaine's back. Cause we saw that at late eighties, it was, it was like. Oh, it was every, the eighties was, as I'm sure you know, Brian, it was out of control. Yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I was in, I was in the middle of it, hanging out in South Central Los Angeles. So I was like, wow. And, and then like spring of 2017, I started to have, uh, repressed memories of being abused as a kid come forward. And that was like, huh? And so I had already been in um, support groups for that, for just growing up in an alcoholic home. Um, and so I was already sort of working on self-help and support groups and stuff like that. And uh, a, a very good friend of mine who, uh, uh, you know, Paul Gilmartin, who does this podcast, Mental Illness Happy Hour, where he talks about, you know, self-care. He's like, man, you got to get help immediately and you got to go, you got to start doing EMDR. You know, it's like really repressed memories are no joke. And I was like, cause I was like, I felt like I was starting to go crazy. So I started spending the t time to find a therapist, which was like a long process in terms of near me, the right person, taking my insurance, all that stuff. And my living girlfriend at the time, this has been two, two and a half years. I don't know if that triggered something, but her behavior started changing. And she used to say to me, I love that you don't drink. I used to date a guy that drank too much. And she was so sweet. And she would say, you're the best boyfriend ever. Like, literally, I have this in writing. Like, we dated for two and a half years. We had two to three, like, arguments is too strong of a turn. Disagreements that always ended with like, no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Never yelled at it. Never had crazy. None of that. That's why I loved her. She was so mellow, so cool. She was this nice, positive energy. Balanced me out. Um, all my friends liked her. And then when I was like starting to go nuts with these repressed memories come forward, which is such an overwhelming thing because what I found out neurologically, when you get abused as a kid, your brain seals it off. Your brain isn't fully developed. It seals off the memory of the abuse. So then when they start, the memories start to come forward and they either come forward usually when you're triggered or when you're feeling really safe. And I felt really safe with this woman. It was really loving, like, when they come forward, your nervous system acts as though it just happened. So your body is physically reacting as though the trauma just happened. So 
And it was like, oh God, was I abused? I didn't realize I was, you know, and uh, it turns out I was, I was abused by this woman that was a friend of my mom's and my mom revered this woman. She was this big, strong feminist. And it was like, oh, and so like the betrayal, I was never say, you know, all this stuff. And you're, you, 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 you know, memories are just like flooding coming forward and you, you, you feel very overwhelmed. And so that's when Paul was like, you got to get professional help immediately. Several people in my support group, were like you got to get professional support groups aren't built for this. You need outside help. And as I was looking for that, I went to a, a male survivor support group. Cause I never, re I never even thought, considered a woman would abuse a, I just thought, oh, I must've been abused by a man. And we were raised Catholic. I was like, oh, this must be, I just thought when I first knew something was, I was like, God, it must've been a man. Was it a priest? Was it my dad? Was it? And then when it like came forward, I was like, oh shit, it was her. Oh my God. It was like, Paul turned me onto the group one in six, which is that's for male survivors. And that's one in six men have been sexually abused by the time they're 18. That's the reported number. It's probably more like one in three, at least one in four, 45% of their abusers are female. And I was like, Oh God, I was in this room with these survivor guys and they're all telling stories. Some abused my men, some my women. I, I mean, I, I was like, Oh, and this was like, Holy shit. And then my girlfriend started, she got this new job where they're like, start up with a bunch of millennials and there's a bar and we all drink after work and it's team building. I'm like, no, that's, this is, this is like Don Draper. Who are you fucking fooling? This is, this is, I don't care if it's a craft brew, you're drinking at work. <laughs> so her behavior started changing drastically. And I was like, oh man. And because I grew up in an alcoholic home and was very much aware of what alcoholic behavior looked like, I was like, uh oh. And then she started, her behavior got really erratic. And then I was like, I, I can't, I can't have this craziness in my house while I'm going through this just started trauma therapy and like repressed memories. And she was like, we should break. I'm like, yeah, fine. Let's, I, I don't know what's going on. I don't know who you are right now. And then, so she was like still at my place. And we had a couple of bad fights. Cause she was like out late. And I was like, what the fuck? Like you were so reliable. And now you're just, and then I came home one night. And she was like, oh, we need to talk. You know, I feel like my life is out of control. She had gotten a, a drinking in public. I found this like citation in her pocket. I was like, what are you, 15? Like yeah. drinking at the park? Like, yeah. what are you doing? Yeah. I've had one of those. Of course. Yeah. I mean, it's literally like, oh God. And, and, and she's like, I feel like my life's out of control. And I was like, you know, go to AA. I'll go to meetings with you, you know? She's like, oh, they're all in weird church basements. I said, no, they're not. There's like, literally, there was a meeting down the street from us at a community center at the park. Right. Yeah. There's meetings everywhere. And she's like, oh, no. And, this, and then she just kept giving me all these excuses. And I was like, well, I don't know what to tell you then. You know, then maybe you should move out. Like, if you, if I, I can't have this, well, I'm, I can't have this in my home, even if everything was going great with me. And then she started getting madder in this conversation and then just, you know, it was like, oh, fuck you. You think you're better? And I was like, all right, that's right. Just quit like you normally do. And then she goes, fuck you, and comes at me, fist cocked. And I got to go down like that because, I mean, I've been in fights. I study martial arts. But I also know as a man, if a woman starts hitting me, I have to just take it. Because I know the law, even if I just grab her wrist to stop her and the cops show up and there's a grab mark, I'm going to jail. 
Unless I have actual video of her hitting me, no one's going to believe me. I just know this. That's the law. I mean, that's the, that's the way like, mm -hmm. they're going to show up guy and girl in a fight. They're going to be like, all right, guy. Yeah. And so I just, and she went, it was the crazy, I had never seen any kind of behavior like this at all. Um, and I was like, I, I, she slept on the couch. I slept in the bedroom with the door locked. And I talked to a friend in a support group. And he goes, have you called the cops? I said, no, I'm a guy, I can handle it. And he was like, big guy, like 6'3", like your size. Mm -hmm. And he goes, let me tell you a story. He goes, I had a wife, 5'6", teeny little petite woman. She'd hit me and beat me all the time. And I thought, I can handle this. You know, I got a black belt. Until I woke up in the ER in a coma because she shoved me down a flight of stairs. And he goes, call the cops, get a restraining order, hide the knives. And I was like, oh. so I hid the knives. Yeah. And I, st I stayed at my friend's house for two days. And, I, and all my friends in the support group, especially women, were like, get her out of there. Right. You know, my friend, I talked to a friend of mine who was a cop. He goes, Graham, get, get her out of there. Get the weapons out of there. This is going to, and I called the domestic abuse center. There's one in Pasadena, I think. And it's the only one that has it for men. There's not a lot of resources for men. That right. we're, we're just supposed to take this shit. And it's a male psyche that like you were saying. Suck it I, up. I'm a man. I can, I can handle this. Take it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah don't yeah. be a pussy. I was abused by a Boy Scout master, mm -hmm. you know, fondled and wrestled and, mm -hmm. you know. And so I guess, you know, there's, anyway, there's a lot of abuse in different ways. Yeah. So I got her out, I got her out of the place. Then that Monday morning, she was getting ready to go to work. And I said, I'll walk you down to your car. And I'd gotten the clicker because of course we had one covered parking space. I let her get it. I'd park on the street. Typical. Right, I'm a nice guy. So I walked her down to her car and I said, I got your keys. We'll figure out a time for you this week to come pick up your stuff. You can't come back. She was like, hot want I go, gotta go. She came back like a couple of days later on the fucking screaming, banging shit. And I'm like, if you keep doing this, I'm going to call the cops. And she said awful stuff to me, you know, whatever. I got a new man. I was like, whatever. And then she made fun of me for being abused as a kid. She goes, oh, I was abused by a woman as a kid. And I was like, I turned around, I walked away from her. And then I turned and was like, going to go back. And this is, where I believe in whatever you want to call it, a God, a higher power or something. I felt a presence literally hug me and I just went, I'm sorry. And I walked and her face dropped. She was trying to get me to hit her. That's my belief. She, oh, was, sure. she was trying to get me to, to, to be yeah. violent with her, which had a guy said that to me, I'd have knocked him the fuck out. <laughs> no two questions asked. Um, so I left and I went down to the beach and I cried and I called a friend of mine, and I called you. Mm -hmm. And and you said, man, she's sick. She needs help. That's awful that she said that. And then I called a woman in my support group and she and it had been about 45 minutes at this point. And the woman said, you might want to go back to the department, make sure she hasn't set it on fire. Right. And I go back up there. And I think this was the scariest part. I go back up there and she's like, well, I think I got everything. And I was like, <laughs> do, 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 yeah, like you're acting like we're just like bro roommates. And it's like, okay, see you soon. Like you just said this awful stuff. You've been violent with me. And now you're going to just be like, okay. And so I had to get a restraining order against her. She still works the Hollywood improv. They won't fire her. It's, and women in position of power are protecting her. <laughs> I had to go to court 
to get the improv's address added to it because it just says she can't come by your place of business. Well, she works there and it's, I'm a comic. I have a million places of business and they wouldn't put a hundred yards on it. They just put five yards. The improv levity entertainment sent a lawyer down kind of on her behalf. Um, but two judges have given me six years of restraining orders. The five-year renewal was given to me by a female judge. But the improv still thinks like I'm the problem. And I'm like, I, I had this phone call with, from Levity Entertainment that I thought was my friend. She called me up, Graham, you can't come perform tonight. I go, why? She's on the schedule. I was like, that's not how a restraining order works. She needs to get the fuck out of there, not me, Graham. And I was viewed as the problem. That's bullshit. <laughs> I was like, it was so frustrating. And one of the things that's amazing about TikTok is there's, there's people putting videos out there to call this out. There's women calling out violent women on TikTok. Like, right. And there, there's videos of guys showing girlfriends just beating the shit and they just have to take it. And women going, why is this okay? Right. Like TikTok is this, and I give credit to like the younger millennial Gen Z. They're just, they just want it truth most of them just want the truth and the honesty and they just find facts and statistics online and go oh this is must be what it is yeah and so it's nice to see people advocating for this yeah it's brutal man it's it's you know when i was in court saying you know your honor i've been showing up at this club unannounced for 20 years i just pop in there hang out right. at the bar right which i still can do but i'm just like i don't know that i want i don't know like it just prolongs it in your mind. It yeah, just it just makes you upset. Yeah, I can't move on. I'm not going to the, I, I would go into that club with so much anxiety. It, what's the why would I he, yeah. you know? That sucks cuz it used to be the place of I have got it done. Nothing but la mem like laughing my ass off at the bar. Mm -hmm. Sometimes just hanging out and they go, "Graham, so we had somebody dropped out. You want to pop in?" I've had great shows there. I've met amazing people. I got lifelong friends there. You know, like Scott Kennedy was an improv comic, the comic that went over to Iraq 50 times. When he passed away, they had a funeral service over them. We all honored him. Right. And a comedian funeral at a comedy club is unlike anything you've ever seen. It's like a roast, a loving roast. Right. And an honor. We told jokes about the guy. Like, and that club was like a part of who I was. I'm like, God, when I die, I hope they have a, a, a thing for me there. No, no, not now. Yeah. I'll, I'll make sure of it. No, they don't get the right to honor me at that club. I just wanted to say I was going to live longer than you. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, man, that's that's um, yeah, that was that was what I that was what I went through, and it was it was it was, and I put a Me Too video out there. A lot of people encouraged me to talk about this several years ago, um, telling the story without naming a lot of specific names, but. And it was, I mean, it was hard on a lot of levels because when I, I called my mom several years ago to say, hey, this is what your friend did to me when I was, my mom called me crazy and gay and said it wasn't her fault. Well, I haven't talked to my mom since. And, you know, but the love that I got from friends like Brian and the support groups and people that went through similar stuff and I got so much healing, you know, and I guess I just got to get to a, to a place of forgiveness with like in the improv uh, or because I, I just, I, it's so, I'm so, I felt very, I, yeah, it was, it was very, in, I, I get so mad at injustice. <laughs> like one of me, my show political vigilante, I mean, I talk about this, I've talked about Epstein and all this stuff. And I just like, I, 
And so I, I don't, I'm against war because it's usually a handful of rich people profiting from it. It's rarely for like noble reasons, you know, and so, but it was a healing journey. Um, and, you know, anyone out there that's struggling with repressed memories, get help, get help. And especially men, men have a three times higher suicide rate because we don't talk about it. And when I start talking about this, the number of men, when I put my video and my story out there of what happened to me, I got a lot of support from women, which was great. And women who went through similar stuff too, which was great. But the men who were like, dude, one of the reasons I wanted to do it is because, you know, I'm not some UFC tough guy cage fighter, but you know, I can handle myself in a fight. I've studied martial arts. I'm not some pushover. And I wanted to show guys like, I can, if I'm talking about this, you should be able to talk about this. Right. I mean, I got a text message from a comic who's like, dude, I'm reading your story. I'm in tears right now. You remember that show we did on this date? I had makeup on because my girlfriend was hitting me and I didn't want to tell anybody. I didn't, right. literally, I thought, Graham, you would think I was a pussy. Right. It's like, well, this is why I told the story. Right. And in the right. comment section on my YouTube page, it's, it's mostly men telling their stories of abuse and some women. And I got a handful of people that were mad or haters I'd say 95% of the people that were critical of what I said were women, like, oh, get over it, or more women are abused, so I don't want to hear it, which is such like a, <laughs> yeah. that's right. preposterous. That's, right. like a, that's like a white woman, it's like telling a white woman that was abused, well, more women of color are abused, so shut up. You know, right. like, yeah. it, it's, you should want to end abuse. You should want to end domestic violence in any way, shape, or form. It's just different. Men, we, ha we don't talk about it. We feel like we're going to be judged by it. Um, and if you were abused as a kid, you know, you don't want to be viewed as weak as a man and all this other stuff. And so that's why I think, I think that's one of the many reasons why the men have a higher suicide rate is we bottle it up and then, you know, don't talk about it. So yeah. it's, it's, um, you know, I'm glad Brian was like having me on to talk about this and it's not easy for me to talk about, but I understand that it's important to talk about. So that's part of it is any guy out there, any, anybody, male or female that was abused, man, if it's a, find someone to talk to, find a professional to talk to, find support groups. And one of the upsides that came out of COVID was a lot of these support groups that were in person now have Zoom meetings. So if you live in some remote part of the country or the world where it's like, yeah. oh, there's not a lot of meetings by me, yeah. you can get a Zoom meeting right now. Yeah. There's any, somebody- Anywhere. Anywhere. Yeah. yeah. I've gone to meetings in Australia, all over the world. I've been in meetings from people from- Iran, I mean, all over the place, man. So like there's help out there and um, you're not alone. Um, that's the key thing. Remember, you're not alone and asking for help is not weakness. It's actually the most courageous thing you can do. Mm, right. To say, mm. I need help with this. John Wall. Mm -hmm. I was just talking about this. You've read about him, the you know John Wall, basketball player, just signed with the Clippers. He was in Washington all those years. He talked about depression and he had suicidal mm -hmm. thoughts. And he said the three most important words that he found out were "I need help." Yes. Look at that guy. He's got two hundred million in the bank. All star, unbelievable Elite player. Athlete. Yeah. Playing with the top of his game with the best, the top one percent of basketball players in the world. Yeah. He's playing with and against. Yeah most important thing he found out i need help it's and people that is oh i got this no i need help is the most courageous thing you can do right you are a badass if you ask for help
Let me tell you that right now. You yeah. are a full-on badass if you ask for help and come in and say, I don't know. I need help. I feel out of control. Yeah. 22 vets a day commit suicide. <laughs> right. So that's a crisis. And anyone that's on their, their last leg and who, you know, and child abuse, childhood trauma is no joke, man. And, and, and I totally get to, I understand why people when confronted with abuse or trauma go, Oh, I'm, I'm out. I'm going to drink drink and get high right. video games, porn, sex, whatever it is, man. Yeah. You know, because I don't want to face this because the, 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 the emotions are tough to face and they are, but the healing you get on the other side and the love and support you get. On, so, I mean, Lally, man, I remember calling you up at 1130 at night, like, I'm fucking going to lose it. Like it, the injustice of, you know, of what happened to me as a kid and what was happening at the improv, like, I'm going to fucking go. And you said, what do you, where are you at? I go, I'm in, I'm in my Santa Monica. He goes, I'm in the Valley. I'm going to come pick you up. I'll be there in 30 minutes. And we went to a diner at midnight and you just and that blueberry cheesecake. Yeah. <laughs> I don't remember what I had, but I remember that's what asking for help is. Mm -hmm. If I didn't ask for help, God knows what I would have done. Suicide by cop, go punch, or maybe I'd be dead or in jail. I'd be in jail because I just went and fucking knock someone out, you know, whatever. I go to the improv, whatever. Like, right. and you showed up for me, man. That's why those three words, I need help. That's what I was doing. Because I was like, I knew I was, I was out of control. And the best I could do is call Brian and go, ah, the fuck, Brian. And, and he was like, all right, what you, I'm stopping what I'm doing right now. He was in the Valley. I was in Santa Monica. He stopped what he was doing and he showed up. So that's, that's what my brother Brian Lally's all about. And that's why asking for help is key. It's only because I love you. I know, dude. I love you too, man. It's, it's. And guys saying, I've had more guys tell me they love me after I started telling this story. You know, a friend of mine who had an, a very abusive stepmom, his dad was in the Navy, he'd be gone three months of time, his stepmom beat the shit out of him and his brother. Everyone in the neighborhood loved her, thought she was awesome. Sure. And so always the abusers, everybody loves the abusers. They're always, they're always the, the yeah. kings of the world. And, Smiling outside the house. And he was like, man, I love you and, and you don't have to be around this. Don't speak surround yourself with love and encouragement and have a support system and self-care and all that stuff is, is critical. So, so thanks, Matt. Yeah. And then you started uh, directing comedy shows for the uh, Native American casinos. Yes. The First Nations Comedy Experience, uh, my friend Micah, uh, who I went to University of Arizona with, okay. um, was in this comedy group with me, Comedy Corner. He He's Native American. I'm not. And he in 2017 goes that's right when the repressed memories and the stuff with Lindsay was all going up the rails but then this cool this is why I, 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 this is what I said to the universe I wasn't working she moved out you know we were splitting the rent so now I was having to pay full rent and I was I, I said look God I can't do trauma therapy a, a violent crazy breakup and money trouble. I can't do it. I just said it. I just, yeah. I just believe like when, when, you know, God ever yeah. gives you more than handle. I don't buy that. I think right. you have to say, Hey God, I'm, I'm, I, I, I can't, right. I can't do anymore. I've had enough. I've had enough. And I literally said, and I wasn't suicidal. I just said, if, if, if there's no work and I'm going to just keep being this struggling comedian, then I'm going to punch out. I'm assuming you're telling me to punch out. Right. I, I, I'm not afraid of death. I'm, right. I'm fine with it. You know? Right. And then this gig, this gig showed up, this Native American thing. And my friend Micah was like, Graham, we don't have a huge budget, but you're, you know, I was 
talent booker. I was the EP. I was the director. I did audience warm up. I hosted the thing. I did everything but make lunch, man. Like, but I, I I knew how to do all that stuff because I'd done into film and, you know, and so we made this, it was the first ever, uh, Native American stand-up comedy series. It was for FNX, which is a small little public channel, but we just, we sold it. Uh, and it's on Amazon, it's on Pluto TV, it's on all these cool formats. The audio tracks are on Spotify. And, you know, I directed a, a um, 13 one-hour comedy specials, basically, and met all some, I you know, and Mike was like, look, Graham, let's, let's, this was part of his idea for the network. He goes, we need Native Americans, obviously, but let's also get a handful of big name acts that are non-native to get non-native eyeballs to the channel because we have all this, they had a native cooking show, that really cool content. And so I got, I got, you know, I, I cast some people that I knew and then I got to meet really amazing comedians. And, uh, you know, I was just talking with, the, with them today about potentially doing some full hour specials with some of the comics and i i it reinvigorated my love of stand-up because i was getting a little like god stand up in la like no one's saying anything everybody's just got their their tinder jokes and their you know but these native comics man they every episode i'd be in the edit bay and i'd say to the editor i go there's no way that they would have let that joke on regular tv like really great i mean because they're political (laughs) every everything they talk about is political it's hard social commentary and so it was like damn it was i was like pumped up Mm. we got to honor charlie hill which was the first ever native to be on stand-up tv in the 70s right he was on carson he was on richard pryor's show yeah richard pryor was the first time he was ever on Mm. he had this great opening joke they'd interview him back then they would say american indian they wouldn't say native american he's an american indian comedian charlie hill and he'd come out and go hi how are you hi how are you you know well you know comedy woody allen said all right comedy is uh tragedy plus time yep but has it been long enough <laughs> yeah, <I don't> <laughs> <laughs> that's why i love you lally you got <laughs> you got great comic relief uh yeah it was it was, it was an awesome series and i got to meet like larry omaha and you know we get to, it was such a cool series to be a part of i saw so many great comics writing very funny material Mark Yaffe's got this joke I still remember. He's like, people I say, oh, you're Native American. Do you have any Native wisdom? He's like, I don't know. I, I grew up in LA. Like, he's like, <laughs> all right. Um, I've been through the desert on a horse with no name. <laughs> it's good to come out of the rain. Like, that's Mark, one of my favorite Mark Yaffe jokes. Mark, you know, I was just like, God, so many great jokes like that. So it was oh, a really cool thing to be a part of. Cool. And now you have... Uh producing tours and uh you know you're you're getting more your social media we talked about so you're in a whole new phase you know graham i i and i've told you this on the on the phone several times before i don't know why i talked to you no i told you to this (laughs) you are tedious graham to talk to you get it done man you know i look up to you and uh and you know you're a guy who who uh like i said about mark Marin, you you create your own job you know what I mean? Is it not working? Okay, I'm going to do this. Is it not working? I mean, it's not easy in any business. I know people say show business harder. Maybe it is, but it's not easy in any business. But you go out there and you figure out what you're going to do next. And now you got a world fucking tour. I was pretty impressed with that, man. You're going to be going around the world. Uh, 
thanks. It's yeah. it's uh, it, I'm very so yeah. In October, I'm on tour. I've I've this this other podcast to do with Lee Camp called Government Secrets. We just call out all the awful stuff America's done. It's not conspiracy. It's like Freedom of Information Act documents, and we laugh about it. Lee is a very funny political comic. He used to do the show called Redacted Tonight. And so we're doing uh, Stockholm, Sweden, October 3rd, Berlin, October 5th, and London, October 12th. Those are live podcasts. We're each going to do stand-up sets to, in the beginning. Um, those are going to be awesome. And then I come back to the States, and I do a tour uh, getting ready to film my first ever comedy special. I've done albums, and stuff, but I've never done a full special. So I'll be in New York City, October 18th, Madison, Wisconsin, October 20th. Detroit, October 21st, Cincinnati, October 22nd. Then I go back to Sweet Home, Chicago, October 26th at the Zanies in downtown, which is one of the oldest clubs in the country. It's a club I started at. There's all these cool old headshots. You'll see my headshot when I was 22, where I have a vest over a t-shirt. The 90s were a complicated time. It was a complicated time. But yeah, so you can see that special. And and I've got this hour and it's very like, like I said, Bill Hicks and... and um, Carlin inspired me to, to, it's an hour of social commentary and politics and mm -hmm. calling out the whole system's broken and my own, what I've been through. And, and, um, I'm, I'm the most proud of this material cause it's, it's really, it's more, it's, it's the most effort I've put into really managing the words. I've always been able to do crowd work and riff and I've always had decent jokes, but I really like, let's get these written words banged out because content is king now and 60 second stand-up clips and and you grow a big following as a stand-up then you can literally do whatever you want right. you know so that's why i want to do this special i was supposed to shoot a special in april of 2020 that got knocked out right. and, you know and i didn't yeah. perform for 16 months yeah like all of us we and so when i came back to performing i was like i like God, I miss stand-up. And I, I mean, I would be in my apartment. We were all, the pandemic was hard for everybody. But for me as a comic, it was tough to not perform. And I really realized how much I missed it and how much it's a part of who I am. I've been a stand-up comic since I was 18, which means I have no marketable skills. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I'm really proud of this special. And if you can, if you're, if you're near any of the cities I just listed, go to GrahamElwood.com. It's got my podcast, my social media, and come out to the shows and it, it it'll be it's awesome and i'm really proud of it so so thanks for having me on and letting me oh know. man dude it's un unbelievable yeah, and you're uh, awesome man Thank thanks you. brother and your political uh you want to uh, yeah political vigilante is my podcast that's my youtube channel and government secrets is one of the shows i do on it so if, again if you go to grahamelwood.com you get all my podcasts my social media my tour dates merch whatever you want to do sign up for the newsletter you get a free vegan smoothie recipe if you do that <laughs> so <laughs> I'll force all my hippie bullshit on you. So uh, yeah, just go. One, one of our one of our sponsors here, Sherry's sister, is a vegan chef. Oh yeah, Chew on Vegan. C H E W. That's her last name. On Vegan. So uh, so yeah, that's should, a great you should name. Check that out. Yeah yeah, Debbie Chew. She's uh, she's really good and really believes in it. I mean, it's a it's a real deal. So cool, man. But again, I love you. Thank love you, you too, so man. much for coming out yeah, here thank today. You, thank you. Thank, thank you for thank driving you me, you. driving me so I didn't have to pay the five bucks a gallon. So, <laughs> <laughs> all right. Okay. Cool.